God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Let us pray. O gracious God, you have given us minds to know you. You have renewed us by your Holy Spirit to hear your word, to know you in a personal way. We thank you for hearts to love you, voices to sing your praise. By your Spirit, we ask you to be present with us, that we may celebrate your glory and worship you in spirit and in truth, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our hymn is number 379, Lord Jesus Christ, be present now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we prepare to celebrate the presence of Christ in word and sacrament, let us call to mind and confess our sin. Let us pray together. Almighty God, who is rich in mercy to all those who call upon you, hear us as we come to you, humbly confessing our sin and transgressions and imploring your mercy and forgiveness. We have broken your holy laws by our deeds and words and by the sinful affections of our hearts. We confess before you our disobedience and ingratitude, our pride and willfulness, and our failure towards you and our fellow men. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, and of your great goodness grant that we may hereafter serve and please you in newness of life 
Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. God put forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood for the forgiveness of our sins to be received by faith. I declare to you as a minister of the gospel that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. We rejoice in this good news and we say together, praise be to God. Listen to the apostles' instruction to the church in Corinth and is continued to be heard today. It's uh, a from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's our call to obedience. I will say um, that with it, it's often understood as sort of this poem, this beautiful poem that gets used at weddings. But in Corinthians, it functions more as a rebuke. Because if it, the things that he's mentioning in there were not abstract, uh, general uh, references to things related to love but actual things that were not happening in that church. If you read through the rest of the letter, you'll see that they weren't doing these things that he's talking about here. So it's, it's a, a lovely rebuke, you might say. It's a, way, it's a way of saying, this is what love is. This is how we're to act as Christ's people. So listen to the apostle's instruction and uh, his eloquent words on love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I give, if I give away all I have and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is uh, incorrect, I think, in your bulletin, but it's number 281. So. Alive and the lost is 
Our Lord indeed is alive. He hears our prayers. We pray through the risen, or in the name of the risen Jesus Christ. Let us join our prayers together now for the church and for this world. Almighty and merciful Father, by your mercy in Jesus Christ, we have been born anew to a living hope, a true hope, rooted in Jesus Christ and your purpose of salvation. As once you brought your people through the Red Sea waters, so from the waters of death you raise us to life with Christ. Once, as the apostle says, we were no people, but now we are your people. Once we were children of wrath, but now we are your adopted sons and daughters. As Christ ascended to your right hand, may our prayers ascend to you in his name. Fill up the whole church with your power and unity and peace. Grant that all who trust you may obey your word and live together in faith and love. May the churches in this city bear witness to the one who rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is present with us, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Here are prayers for churches from different Christian traditions, Baptist, Methodist, Independent. We even pray for those with whom we have serious a serious disagreement and break, the Eastern Orthodox, the Roman Catholic. We pray for Lutheran churches. We pray for Redeemer PCA in Midtown Detroit. We pray that there would be a faith fixed firmly on Jesus Christ. There would be unity among the churches as they are set upon Jesus Christ and bear witness to him. Here are our prayers for the church to be united in one faith and one baptism in Christ. O ruler of the nations, guide us in the way of justice and truth. Increase order and peace and righteousness in the societies of this world. May we always defend and come to the aid of oppressed people. We pray you would stop the shootings in our cities with policies that promote the good of society. Hear our prayers that you guide and direct those who govern us in this world to the end that there would be just governments and there would be more peace among the nations. We pray for the rulers in, the, in this world, such as Emmanuel Macron, Vladimir Putin, Andre Lopez Obrador in Mexico, Joe Biden, our president, Hassan Rouhani in Iran, Xi Jinping of, Japan, of China, and we pray for the end of the war in Ukraine. Many of these leaders are cruel and have oppressed their people and the church in their countries, We pray, O Lord, that you would bring an end to that. Hear our prayers. We beseech you for the mission of the church that in faithful witness to Jesus Christ, your people may proclaim the gospel to every nation. Hear our prayers for our missionaries, Benjamin Hopp in Haiti, Octavius Delphils in Haiti, and Ben Westerveld in Quebec, along with their families. Hear our prayers. We pray you would bless the pastors and churches of the Presbytery of Michigan and Ontario. Bless them with faith and hope and love. Here are prayers for Lap Duong and the Vietnamese Church in Grand Rapids and also for Stephen Pribble and Grace OPC in Lansing. Our Father, give to this congregation your grace for its life together, its vocation to be witnesses to Christ in this world, and for its worship. 
Fill our hearts with your self-giving love so that our voices may speak your praise and we may grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We pray you give us the bread of life that we may remain your people and faithfully serve you in the mission that Jesus gives us. Here are our prayers for those in need in our congregation and for our friends, for Luca and Frida, Julie and Eduardo, Jeff, Fawn, for our friends Becky and Angie, Phil, Tom, Karen, Bob, Chris, Dominic, and others we name to you in silence. May the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, which sets us free from sin and gives us new life, may it be heard with faith. And may these for whom we pray be strengthened in their weakness and have confidence in your grace and the goodness that you lavish upon us. Finally, we do pray that you would encourage us and send us out into the world to proclaim Christ's victory over sin and to work in our cities for peace among people, justice for the weak and innocent, for a society in which people are not exploited in the name of personal freedom. May we help people who are languishing and teach a greater knowledge of your ways and your will, always bearing witness to Jesus Christ. Into your hands, Heavenly Father, we commit our prayers, trusting in your mercy revealed in Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
We prepare now to hear God's word read and preached by praying our prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do ask for the grace of the Spirit's work in illumining our hearts and um, that we would receive your word, um, giving it its due. And we <clears throat> echo, again, <clears throat> what we sang earlier in one of our hymns. Make strong our faith, increase our light, that we may know your name aright. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Our reading begins in Isaiah. Chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. <clears throat> Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Our Psalter response is in the bulletin from Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalted in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end, and the last of the rooms. Their cities you rooted out, the very memory of them is But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord, who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of him. He does not forget the pride of the Our second reading is from Acts chapter 2. The first six verses. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And lastly, our gospel reading from Mark. Chapter 16, beginning in verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The word of the Lord. Many years ago, I preached a series of sermons on the first half of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John has what's called the Book of Signs and then the, the, book, the book of Jesus' Passions, like two parts. So I preached the first part of it. When I came to the story of Jesus' encounter with the woman caught in adultery, it's in John chapter 8 at the beginning, I declined to preach it. So I preached through the Gospel of John, but I skipped that story. The story is not in some of the earliest manuscript copies. It's not really in the best manuscript copies that we have of the Gospel of John. And when it is included in the Gospel of John, that story, it's not always in the same location in the book. So there are lots of different copies and manuscripts of the Gospel of John. And in some of those ancient manuscripts, it doesn't appear in the same same place in the book of John. For instance, some of the later manuscripts append the story of the woman caught in adultery to the end of the Gospel of John. So when you read through the Gospel of John, that story is at the very end in those manuscripts. Other copies inserted earlier 
in the seventh chapter of John, not in chapter 8 and chapter uh, 7. The majority of biblical scholars believe it was added later to the Gospel of John. Even though the story of Jesus does fit well with the Gospel's presentation of him, it was probably not original to the Gospel of John, and so I decided, I declined to preach the text. Now, we could make educated guesses about how this happened, but I'm preaching a sermon. I'm not preaching or doing a lecture on the Gospel of John. So this is why I bring up preaching of John, which is not one of our texts this morning. It's because if I were to preach the Gospel of John again, I would preach the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Pastors grow in their Christian faith and knowledge, just like you do. I have grown in my understanding of the Bible as the Christian canon. The Bible is not merely a book of information, a holy book full of information. It's the canon of the church. A canon, the word canon used in this sense, is a rule or authoritative standard. Think of a yardstick by which you measure things. A canon is like that. The Christian Bible is the canon for the church. It's not just a book of sacred information about God and us that we study. The entire Bible handed down to us is a canon. It's the rule and authority for what we believe and how we practice the Christian life. And I've come to realize that we must read the Bible and receive it as canonical, not just a collection of sacred writings. Now, why am I telling you this in conjunction with our lesson from the end of Mark? It's because the ending to the Gospel of Mark is like the story of Jesus' encounter with the woman caught in adultery. The ending to the Gospel of Mark in our Bibles is not original to the Gospel of Mark. It was added later. These lines are not included in the earliest manuscript copies of Mark, and you probably have a footnote or two explaining that in your Bible. There's a footnote here in this pulpit Bible that says that. Originally, the Gospel of Mark ended with chapter 16, verse 8, which says, And the women went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had come upon them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's it. That's where it ended. The Gospel of Mark ends with fleeing from the tomb of Jesus, the women saying nothing to anyone, and fear and trembling. Well, it begs for more, especially if you know the other Gospel accounts, Matthew, Luke, and John. By the time you get the the second generation and some of the early uh, Christians who heard the Gospel of Mark, would have begun to be familiar with these other Gospels and heard them, and they would hear how all these other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Matthew, Luke, and John, I'm sorry, that none of them end so abruptly as Mark. They all include stories of Jesus appearing to his disciples. There were early Christians who heard the Gospel of Mark along with these other Gospels, and they believed there was more to the Gospel than where it ends at chapter 16, verse 8. And therefore, more was added to the end of Mark, and that more is what is called the longer ending of Mark. Even with the longer ending, Mark's original ending stands in its own right, and I preached it last week, and I think it's, it, it actually has a very powerful message ending at verse 8, and so it stands in its own right. This is not to say that Mark somehow was deficient and, and needed more of an ending. But the church and the early Christians, some of them heard, uh, you know, looked at the other Gospels, and, and they wanted to add to it um, it's, uh, that longer ending. The longer ending 
has been in the canon, the Christian canon, from very, very early on, and it's rightly preached in relationship to the rest of the Gospel of Mark. So you see what's happened. It was added on, or best early manuscripts don't show that longer ending, so it was, it was attached at some point, but it's been in the Christian canon from the beginning. The church has always included that and recognized it as, as part of the canon of the church. It's been in the Gospel of Mark. There is actually another little ending. It might be in parentheses at the footnote of your Bible. It's called the shorter ending. Um, but it has not, doesn't have as strong um, attestation as the longer ending, so it's not really a, 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 a regular part of the canon. It's just set in there sort of in a bracket. This longer ending of Mark is aware of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and it borrows from them to fill out Mark. If you heard echoes from the other Gospels when you were listening to that longer ending, then that's because there are echoes from the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, maybe even a little bit from the Gospel of John. The longer ending is three stories of Jesus appearing to his disciples. The first story relies on Luke 24, and it's about the disciples not believing the women. The second story also relies on Luke 24, and it's about Jesus appearing to the disciples on the road. And the third story of Jesus appearing to his disciples at the table, commissioning them, is from a combination of Luke 24 and several stories in Acts. So it's drawing very heavily from these other sources. If, if it troubles you that you've got this ending that, well, it wasn't original, it's just maybe comforting to you to realize that, that it is being drawn from other parts of Scripture. And um, in all of this, can't we say the Holy Spirit's at work in, in, in working out through inspiration the, uh, the, the, uh, the final version of the Gospel of Mark? The Christian canon of Scripture includes the story of the woman caught in adultery and the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark. That's important to understand. Otherwise, if we decide it's up to us to decide to, to choose what we like and what we don't like, then uh, we're ignoring the canon of Scripture, and now we've made ourselves sort of the, the uh, editors of Scripture. We need to respect what has been in place in the church from the beginning or nearly from the beginning. As the church pulled these different gospels and the epistles together, there were a lot of other writings out there. It's a mistake to think that the Bible just fell down out of the sky and set there as a completed book from the very beginning. When Mark wrote his gospel for, the, for his church, his Christian community, um, he's, it's considered probably the first gospel. And the other Gospels weren't written yet. You didn't have the Bible as we know it today in the very, very beginning, you know, right after Jesus died and maybe 20 years later when the Gospel of Mark was written. Slowly, by the end of the first century, you have the epistles and the other writings that are brought together, and you have, um, the, the, you have this, this uh, collection that is put together, but there are a lot of other writings out there in the church. I believe, and this would be very orthodox, uh, Christianity to say the Holy Spirit's at work with the church decide, de, uh, discerning what writings belong in the Christian canon and which ones don't. Do you know there's a Gospel of Thomas? If you ever read that Gospel of Thomas, you can go look it up online. There are a couple versions of it, an Egyptian version, a Greek version. But you can read that, and you'll immediately recognize this is not the Jesus that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the church recognized that, and um, and so 
fully with the work of the Holy Spirit, it was not included. And you can be very glad it was not included because the Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas is horrendous. He's a little spoiled brat. It, it supposedly takes, it's supposedly about Jesus' life in his childhood, you know, because it's silent. Scripture doesn't say much about that except for one verse in Luke chapter 2. So it sort of fills in the blank. It was a Gnostic writing, Christian Gnostic writing. In other words, Christian because it's using Jesus and all. And um, in the church, there were lots of writings like that. The church uh, knew that those didn't belong. Um, but it, it did recognize this ending to the Gospel of Mark, although it sets it off. So it recognizes that, hey, this is drawn from some other sources that are being added to Mark, but it belongs. And so it's in our Christian canon. The risen Jesus is present with his church. When the women went to the tomb of Jesus, the angel said, He's not, he is risen, he is not here. Where was Jesus? Well, our text tells us one place where Jesus was, he was with his disciples. Verse 14 says, after he appeared to Mary and the two walking along the road, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. Appearing is making himself known to them. It's not suddenly showing up. That's a mistake to think that Jesus wasn't there, he wasn't present, now he is present. No, he was manifesting himself. He was appearing. He was present all the time with his church, but he did manifest himself. He appeared to them. So Jesus is present with his disciples. Even after he ascended into heaven, Jesus is present with his church. His ascension was not, leave, not Jesus leaving his church behind. His ascension was going to his victorious seat of power. The seat at the right hand of the Father was reserved for Jesus because he is the Lord who has triumphed over sin, death, and the devil. Jesus took his seat to rule over the creation and his church. Jesus did not leave his disciples. The ascension is not about, I'm leaving you and forsaking you. It's about Jesus taking his seat, you know, seat seated in, his, in the uh, authority and power at the right hand of the Father. He was still present with his church, albeit in a different form. Actually, his ascension is his ruling for us while he continues to be present with us. Jesus is no more absent from us here today than he was from his first disciples. The longer ending of Mark tells this to the church. It tells it to the church that comes after Mark wrote his gospel and, and all the generations thereafter, that, which includes us. It tells us that Jesus is present with us. He is present with Providence OPC right now. Even though it's been 2,000 years since he rose from the dead, Jesus is really and truly present with us. He did not rise from the dead, say hello to his disciples, and then take off for heaven as if he was going on a foreign trip. Jesus is present with us, and he's setting our faith on him. Now, there are three stories in the longer ending of Mark, and each one has unbelief in it. The first story is about the risen Jesus appearing to appearing to Mary Magdalene, and she tells the other disciples. It's a condensed version of the story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. You can go back and look at it and compare it. But it's a condensed version of that story, which tells of Jesus appearing to the women. And it includes, in Luke 24, it includes Mary Magdalene. And then these women went and told the 11 disciples. The disciples did not believe it because they were sure that Jesus was dead and not present with them. Mark says, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it, verse 11. 
The second story is the longer ending, in the longer ending of Mark, is about Jesus appearing to the two disciples walking along the road. Did you, did you kind of, did that jog something in your memory? The road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24. It's a highly abbreviated version of that story of Jesus' appearance to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The ending of Mark sums it up and says Jesus appeared to them as they were walking into the country And the two disciples went back, and they told the rest of the disciples, but they did not believe them. There's unbelief in this story as well, and since the other disciples did not believe the two who saw Jesus risen from the dead um, and being alive, it also is about unbelief. The last story is about the risen, living Jesus appearing to the 11 disciples at the table. It uses stories from Luke 24 about Jesus eating with his disciples. In one of those stories, Luke says, when Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. We use that line often when we come to the Lord's table. Later, Jesus stood among the disciples and showed them his hands and his feet. Those are two different sort of uh, accounts in Luke 24. Luke says, in, in, when he appeared to them, showed them his hands and feet, Luke says, while they disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And he ate a piece of fish uh, that they gave him. In this last story, in the longer ending of Mark, there's unbelief also. Jesus appeared to his disciples at the table, and the text says he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen, verse 14. Now, that is not subtle. It is not subtle. These disciples did not believe the first witnesses who told them Jesus was risen from the dead and was present with them. The longer ending of Mark speaks right to those disciples who hear that Jesus is risen and present. And that would be all of Jesus' disciples who came after the first eyewitnesses. And that would be us. We have heard that Jesus has been raised from the dead and is present with us from the first witnesses as it is written for us in Scripture. And these stories call out the unbelief of Jesus' disciples then and now. Today, we who follow Jesus believe he's risen from the dead. We believe it and we confess it every week in worship. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who, and then we have this line from the creed, who was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And notice that we believe Jesus has risen from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures contain the witness of the first disciples who saw the risen Jesus. So we hear their report and we believe it. And yet, do we believe it as information? Do we believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ is information that we confess and tell others? It is truth that we must confess and guard, but do we believe Jesus is present with us? Believing Jesus has risen from the dead is not simply an important fact that we must confess if we follow Jesus. If our faith is in accord with the first witnesses to the risen Jesus, then we believe he is risen and present with us. Now, there are two reasons it's hard, and there are probably more than two, but there are two reasons it's hard for us to believe Jesus is present with us in a real, objective way. And the first is because we're Protestants. We protest how the Roman Catholic Church understands Christ's presence in the Mass. 
The Catholic Church teaches that the bread and the wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ, and thus he is present in a real tangible way with the church. The early Protestants all rejected the doctrine of the Mass. Some of them, like Zwingli, Aldrich Zwingli, denied that there was any real presence of Jesus with the Lord's Supper. Zwingli said the sacramental signs point to an absent reality. He believed a sacrament is a sign of a past grace, not a present one. Other Protestants, like Martin Luther, Martin Bootser, and John Calvin, taught that Jesus Christ is present, but not the way the Catholic Church said he was. John Calvin said the bread and the cup are signs of the reality of Christ's bodily presence, but they're not empty signs. John Calvin had a serious problem with Zwingli. The sacramental signs, Calvin said, present what they represent. Calvin said, for why should the Lord put in, put in your hand the symbol of his body except to assure you of a true participation in it? In spite of Calvin, many of the Protestant and Reformed churches adopted Zwingli's interpretation of the Lord's Supper and believed that they were empty of the real presence of Christ. And today, many Protestants still do not believe Christ is present with us at the communion table. Now, the other reason we do not believe Jesus is present with us in a real objective way is that we are modern people. It's hard for us to believe in the real presence of Jesus if we cannot use our senses to recognize him. If we do not have a direct, verifiable identification of the risen Jesus present with us, then we don't believe it. We believe Jesus has risen, but we do not believe he is present except maybe in some kind of an emotional, psychological way. So these are two reasons the risen Jesus has become information that we believe while we deny he's really present with us. Well, Jesus is present with us, and he sets our faith on him. That is what Jesus did when he expressed his disapproval of his disciples' unbelief. In verse 14, he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Now, this sounds like scolding, doesn't it? But what Jesus was doing was giving his disciples faith and setting it on him. And he does that no less with us. Jesus is present with the preaching of his word and with the sacraments and with us in in the fellowship of the church in his name, loving each other. He's present with us, setting our faith on him. The risen Lord has ascended in heaven and he's still present with us. Believing in Jesus Christ is more than believing information. It is believing he is the risen Lord present with us. Jesus is present with his disciples and he gives us a mission. After reproaching his disciples for their unbelief, Jesus says, Go into the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. Verse 15. The next several verses are Jesus' instructions to his disciples for the mission that he gives them. And these instructions draw from several stories in the book of Acts, and unfortunately Christians have grossly misunderstood some of these instructions. It helps to remember that they're all related to the missional command that Jesus gives to his disciples. He says, go into the, all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. And all these signs he talks about are all tied into that proclamation and, and what the gospel is all about. Here is how these instructions tie into that mission. The right response to the gospel is to believe it and be baptized. Verse 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned. 
Now, it sounds similar to what Peter tells the crowd in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We heard the first part of that story in Acts chapter 2, and then later on, it sounds similar to what, Jesus, uh, what Peter says to the crowd. They heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then they asked, what shall we do? It was a question of how to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the apostle Peter told them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We had a fellow visit Providence Church many years ago, and he took issue with one line in the Nicene Creed. He caught me out, you know, out by the doors going out. Um, took issue with one line in the Nicene Creed, which we confess this creed every Lord's Day, so he, he was here when we did it. And it was the line at the end where we say, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. He thought this was erroneous because it sounded like we were saying that, that baptism saves us or we were confessing that baptism saves us and therefore it should not be included in the creed, he said, or at least we should change it. That's, that's a big undertaking to change an ecumenical creed of the church. We're going to radically on our own change it. I told him that's not what it means and it does echo scripture. I don't know what he thought we should do with Mark 16. Maybe he would just dismiss the longer ending, in Acts chapter 2. Probably he wanted us to interpret these texts in such a way as to make them not say what they do say. However, if we take these exhortations to be in line to the preaching of the gospel with, with what Jesus is saying, that, that how we are to respond to the gospel, then we don't have to get hung up on them. If we understand this whole business about being baptized for the remission of sins in relationship to the gospel, then we don't have to get hung up on the other questions like baptism by itself, does it save us? Baptism is about response to the gospel. It's tied to that. Good Christian theology does not teach that baptism in and of itself saves us. It does teach that baptism is a necessary part of our response to the good news. What Jesus commands his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel amounts to the same thing. Remember that? The Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of, disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When the church goes out into the world proclaiming the good news to the whole creation, the converts are to be baptized. Baptism marks them off as belonging to Christ. It's not an option. As the signs... As for the signs, so that was a command for them to go out and to baptize. As for the signs that come after that, they're part of that proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus proclaimed in word and deed that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He didn't just say and teach that. He also did things that confirmed it or revealed it. So the signs that Jesus did revealed what he was saying and who he is. Verses 17 to 18 in Mark Chapter 16 lists certain signs that fit with what Jesus did during his ministry and what the apostles did in Acts. Casting out demons, speaking in tongues, picking up serpents, and the healing of the sick. Those are sort of a combination of things that Jesus did and what, some, uh, what the apostles did. For example, in Acts 28, the very last chapter of Acts, the apostle Paul was picking up wood for a fire when a serpent bit him. Remember that? And, and I, it always makes me kind of... You know, shiver a little bit when I read it because it talks about it. It's hung on to him. Yeesh, I do not want a serpent to do that. Paul shook it off, and those who saw it were amazed that he suffered no harm. The one sign that does not have a connection to Acts is drinking poison. 
But there are stories in the early church of Christians being forced to drink poison and it, and it did not kill them. These stories go along with the Apostle Paul who suffered no harm. We should take them together. We should not be separating them out as, they, as if they stand alone. Now again, a right interpretation of these signs is that they're tied to the gospel, into the gospel that the church is to preach. When Jesus came and proclaimed the kingdom of God, his proclamation was not just words, but the miracles that he did. And they were part of his proclamation that he is the Lord who has invaded this world and has conquered the powers of sin and the devil. And Jesus showed that by casting out the demons. The signs the apostles did were also indicative of the Lord Jesus' mission and the coming of the kingdom of God. It wasn't about them somehow having some independent power and, and, and some new ability on their own. It's all tied to the Lord Jesus' mission and the coming of the kingdom of God. And that's what we're to make of these signs. They fit in with the gospel. Let's keep them with the gospel. They don't stand alone. We're not to take them for their own sake. And yet that is what many Christians have done. They have sought after the signs themselves, like the reclusive churches that practice snake handling in their church. Mr. Klaus is not here today, but he told me once that he was traveling through Tennessee, stopped at a church to worship, and discovered it was one of these churches. That uh, is where you definitely want to sit in the back row. <laughs> or it could be those those churches that desire to speak in tongues, like the Corinthian church. The Apostle Paul exhorts them with these words, and I used it for the call to obedience. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Why does Paul bring that up? Because that's exactly what some of them, at least in that church, wanted. They wanted to have this extraordinary gift, this gift that showed they had a higher spirituality than, than the other members of the church. They used it, and they wanted it in an arrogant, self-centered way. And Paul speaks against that. The Christians in, in uh, the early Christians needed to hear that speaking in tongues is part of the gospel. It's not something for higher spirituality. Since the longer ending of Mark draws from the book of Acts, since some of these other signs come from the book of Acts, it leads us to think of the speaking of tongues in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, which is why that was our second reading. The tongues there were the many languages of the nations. And that fits with Jesus' command, doesn't it? Go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And all these nations out there in this whole creation have lots of different languages. So as the gospel goes out, especially as we see this in Acts chapter 2, it's for the nations and therefore it's to be in their language. So to take that speaking in tongues as something sort of that stands on its own and we seek for itself is really going to end up misunderstanding it as part of the gospel. The right response to the gospel then is to believe and be baptized, and go out on the mission that Jesus gives us. Christianity is a missionary faith. In uh, 2013, the Department of, of, of Defense, following the direction of the White House, issued an order that banned proselytizing in the military. And that seems to be kind of an ugly word. We don't, you know, when we hear the word proselytize, we sort of react to it. Um, but it, it simply means trying to pers persuade someone to change from one religion to another. The ban said no more proselytizing, and this raised a big question about what chaplains and Christians were to do. And that's because Christianity is a missionary religion, a missionary faith. We teach Christ and we call people to believe in him and follow him. And there are some nations 
that have laws against trying to convert someone to another faith. And certainly there are disrespectful ways of doing this. There are pushy ways of doing this. But it can be done without trying to coerce the other person, simply talking to them in a, in a friendly relationship and not trying to control them and beat it into their heads. Okay, say the magic words. That's, that's, that's inappropriate. But it can, sharing the gospel can be done in a way that's very, very friendly, very kind, very respectful. But regardless of this, nations like Myanmar, Nepal, some, like seven provinces in India, Pakistan, they've all passed laws making it illegal to facilitate religious conversion. And Sri Lanka, our Frida, who may be watching right now, uh, she's from Sri Lanka, and that uh, nation is considered a bill that would also ban religious conversion. There's also a strong cohort in our society that wants to silence the Christian voice and shut down the church, at least the church's missionary work. Now, there's the argument that free speech is good for society, and that's one thing. But more to the point in our lesson from Mark this morning is that Jesus gives us a mission. Jesus gives us a mission. He creates his church with a mission. And that mission cannot be separated from our faith in him. We must tell everyone. Our Lord directs us to tell everyone and not just keep it to ourselves. Christ is present with us, converting unbelievers as we go into the world. He draws people to himself and he brings them into his church. Those who oppose Christianity can try to shut us down and change what the church is all about, but it's in our DNA. Judging by the condemnation, Christianity is not welcome at many, Christian, at, at many college campuses. They don't want to hear from the Christians. They actually want to uh, remove the charter for some of those Christian groups. There are cities, uh, some city and state governments that want to pass laws that punish Christianity for its gospel message of sinners saved by, the, by God's grace, especially when you start breaking down what that sin is. They don't want the church to be saying that. They want everyone to be able to sit happily in whatever they want to do. In our lesson, Jesus promises to preserve the church with its mission. He says, you will pick up serpents, and if you drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt you. That's how to hear those signs in connection to the gospel. It's about Jesus preserving the church with his mission. It's not about us going out and trying to find serpents to test whether this is true or not, or we have enough faith, or uh, you know, drinking poison to see if, if God will preserve. That's called testing, and we're not to be doing that with God. But we can understand these signs as promises of preserving the church with its mission. Therefore, let us go out with faith that he is present with us, and let us proclaim the gospel. If there are those who do not receive it, then we move on. But we want to tell the whole world and tell them to believe Jesus is risen from the dead and ascended as the Lord of all. How are we to respond to the gospel? With faith that Jesus has been raised from the dead and is present with the church, be baptized in the church, and go out into the world proclaiming the gospel. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose blessed Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead and ascended far above all heavens that he might rule in power and might, mercifully give us faith to perceive that According to his promise, he abides with his church on earth, even to the end of the ages. And may we go forth into the world with that assurance. 
Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith with the Nicene Creed, and you can look for that line in it. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is number 437, O God, to us show mercy.
This is the joyful feast of the people of God. Men and women will come from east and west and from north and south and sit at table in the kingdom of God. This is the Lord's table. He invites us to feast with him. Those who come to this holy meal promise to trust and love and obey him as the Lord of every realm of life. The ascended Lord rules over all. And we promise to live in love and concern for each other. It's my privilege as Christ's minister to invite all who have been baptized, who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and our communicant members of a Christian church who are welcome to come to this table. If that is not the case for you, we're glad you're here, but you need to be visibly, uh, those visible um, ways of being, uh, those ways of being visibly united with Christ's church are necessary, and um, until that is set right, it's best to stay back until you are indeed baptized, publicly professed faith in Christ, and belong. We say communicative members around here. We're talking about belonging and being um, part of a Christian church. According to the Gospel of Luke, when our risen Lord was at table with his disciples, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. The apostle reminds the church, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a communion or a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break is about a communion or participation in the body of Christ. Join with me in giving thanks to God for our new life and our salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks to we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, our gracious Father, along with your whole church and all who are surrounded, who have surrounded you in heaven, the heavenly host. For you have created us in all things, and you alone are worthy of praise and blessing. So we join that song of heaven. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. We give you thanks, above all, for your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent to us. He was born in the flesh, coming to deliver us and lead us out of captivity. He who suffered and died for us has been raised and has ascended above the heavens to rule over your church and all of heaven and earth. And with all the, the host of heaven and earth being brought together in him, we, your church, do confess that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We ask now, now that you would sanctify this bread and this cup by your spirit, feed us by your grace, fill us with the food of Christ so that we do not hunger, and are strengthened to remain faithful to you and continue along with your whole church in the salvation and mission that you have given. Through Christ and with Christ and in Christ and the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory are yours, O loving Father, forever and ever. And we offer our thanksgiving with one voice, and we say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and blood abides in me and I in him. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood shed for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. All praise to you, our God and Father, for you have fed us with the bread of heaven, quenched our thirst from the true vine. Hear our prayer that being grafted into Christ, we may grow together in unity, be of service for the world, and feast with him in his kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We didn't collect the diacla offering, so I think we'll do that now. Um, if we could have the ushers come forward and collect that offering. We do this once a month for the needs of the church.
hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. We will take just a moment to look at the calendar. Um, Beginning immediately after fellowship time, our Christian education classes at 11.45 today. The Thursday night Bible study at 7 p.m. at the church. Our next fellowship meal together will be next Lord's Day. Um, where we enjoy a time of uh, of uh, eating and and uh, visiting. Please uh, have that in mind. Also, if you would pray, you know we're in proximity to Lawrence Tech University, and we we need to to make that connection. We need a student there. Um, who can who can be a contact person? We can't generate that through the university. A student has to request that, and we've I've had a conversation with a student trying to trying to work that out. But um, just pray for an opportunity to be a presence at Lawrence Tech. Finally, behold, <laughs> curtains. As one who's often sat on that side of the sanctuary, in the winter months, as the arc of the sun goes low in the south, you knew you'd had to move and shield yourself. So I think someone saw our intense suffering (laughs) and put extra curtains up there. So I think... Joyce has some idea, maybe if you had a hand in this, and maybe Deneen, but thank you very much. I thank you, and my skin thanks you. Anything else? All right, let's have some coffee.